This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Prosh. Howdy, and welcome to another action-packed episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm Richard Prosh, and next to me, cleaning his six-gun, is my co-host, Paul Bishop. How are you, pal? I'm doing okay, but can you help me out here? I got my finger stuck in the barrel again. Again. Okay. Hold still. Oh, that's much better. Thank you. (laughs) Ouch. At least you didn't turn it into a pull-my-finger joke. No, I'm saving that for the grandkids. And I'm sure they'll appreciate it. So how about telling us what's on today's episode? Sure. As you know, we've been doing a series of episodes on historic characters such as Custer, Buffalo Bill, and last week, Jesse James, who are so much larger than life that we've had to break their episodes up into two parts. To do justice, no pun intended, to today's feature on Billy the Kid, we're going to have to follow the same pattern. I assume we're going to do a similar thing as we did with Jesse James and use part one to put Billy the Kid into a historic perspective, then deal with his impact on pop culture in part two. There will inevitably be some crossover, but that's the general idea. But as usual, before we get started, we need to catch up with what Westerneering we've been involved with since we were last together. Westerneering. That isn't a word. It is now. (laughs) If you say so. I do. So why don't you start us off? Okay. You know, Paul, there's nothing better than a used book sale, unless it's an unexpected book sale and one where the books are remarkably inexpensive and likewise sought after. I mean, I love hitting an advertised sale, but the surprise of an unexpected bargain, that's just an added delight. Bargains is the key word here, as in House of Bargains. House of Bargains is a longtime landmark in the mid-Missouri area. In the days before Walmart or Costco filled the landscape with box stores, local discount shops and thrift chains were treasure troves of clothes, toys, everyday household items, and often books, as was House of Bargains. I bought most of my early paperback collection from two local small-town shops, and even when we ventured into the big city, I often found myself loitering around after lunch at Woolworths or some other department-style venue in front of a book rack. Boy, I remember those days. As much as I love browsing Amazon, eBay, or Facebook for paperback finds, nothing will ever beat those old wire racks in the supermarkets and and five-and-dime stores. Agreed. When I first visited the House of Bargains in the mid-1980s, I found several paperback stands strewn across a wide expanse of linoleum floor. And over the decades since, the store's foot traffic has dwindled. It's hard to know how it hung on these past few years with competition from the bigger places. So when I saw that House of Bargains was closing its doors for good with a big blowout sale, I honestly wasn't surprised. In fact, I, it didn't even make much of an impression on me. However, I just happened to be driving past on the second to the last day of the sale. So with some time to kill, I stopped in. Literally, the first thing I saw was an aisle filled with library pushcarts full of books, Hardcovers, soft covers, even those spiral-bound small press tomes, big books, kids' books, reference books. House of Bargains had uncovered its forgotten inventories, and everything was on display. Surprise. And on sale, bargains, the sign said, all books, $1 each. Now that's what I'm talking about. What a sale. Yeah, and these weren't the typical dollar books you usually find, The Doorstoppers by Jacqueline Suzanne or 27 of the same James Mickner novel. 
This was the good stuff. I brought home some crime novels, like a first edition hardback copy of our mutual friend Andrew Vack's debut novel, Flood. I picked up a Mike Shane paperback, Murder Spins the Wheel, along with a couple others. But I roped a slew of westerns, too, including some that were new to me. So, for example, I found a copy of J.T. Edson's The Law of the Gun, which is an entry in his Dusty Fog Floating Outfit series. What was cool here is that I came home to discover I already had a copy of that book, along with a second book in the series, The Town Tamers. So, I'm going to make a deal with listeners. The first person who sends me his address via Facebook Messenger can claim the duplicate copy and I'll send it to you free of charge. What a guy. I also picked up the Fawcett Gold Medal edition of Comanche Vengeance by Richard Jessup. Our friend David Vineyard reports Jessup is a solid writer, and David also recommends the Jessup novel, The Cincinnati Kid. Most cool. Was there anything else of interest? Beside a pile of college textbooks, I found the movie tie-in novel for Going South by Madeline Shainer with a Jack Nicholson photo cover and Nicholson's name emblazed underneath as if he were the author of the thing. Madeline Shainer is a name I know from Hollywood, but as a theater critic, not an author. She was a popular columnist for the Park La Brea News and Beverly Press. How the heck did she get her name fixed onto a Western movie tie-in novel? It's kind of a neat story. She and her husband, John Shainer, were an interesting couple. While it's true Madeline was primarily a theater buff and newspaper columnist, John actually wrote scripts for The Man from Uncle, the Jeff Bridges movie Halls of Anger, 1970s The Island of Dr. Morrow, and Going South, starring Jack Nicholson, who was an old family friend of the Shainers. And it turns out Madeline often novelized her husband's scripts. Who'd have thunk it? On the next cart at House of Bargains, I found Donald Hamilton's Texas Fever, John D. Nesbitt's North of Cheyenne, and Under the Sweetwater Rim by Louis L'Amour. What a great haul of Western lore. All four, let's see, da-da-da, carry the one, less than ten bucks. Yeah, I like how you do all your ciphering with that old-fashioned bullet pencil. If I had a sound effect for licking the end of a lead pencil stub before starting to write, I'd have used it. (laughs) Not a fan of the new math? Uh, This is a family show, so I can't tell you what I really think of new math. Instead, why don't you tell me more about that there Dusty Fog character? Six-Gun Justice podcast deputy James Reasoner says that the early Dusty Fog books are great. In nearly every book, there's a dialogue exchange along the lines of, Say, who is that short-growed little runt anyway? Why, he's Dusty Fog! which is said in the same odd tone of voice that the townspeople say, Randolph Scott in Blazing Saddles. Saddles. (laughs) James was fortunate to meet Edson once, and in real life, apparently he was a colorful, bombastic, and very entertaining guy. So thanks to James for sharing that with us. Speaking of entertaining, how about you sharing your latest good read? Well, by the time this episode airs, I will have returned from spending time in Lawrence, Kansas. But recently, I was in my local Friends of the Library used bookstore and found the first two books in Don Coldsmith's highly regarded Spanish bit saga. In reading the About the Author section, it turns out that Coldsmith lived most of his life in Emporia, Kansas, where he was a physician as well as a wordslinger. Since Emporia is relatively close to Lawrence, that was enough of an excuse for me to dive into the series. I've started reading series for less reasons, so what did you think of it? 
I was surprised. I was expecting this fact-laden historical novel that wasn't going to pass my 20-page test before I tossed it aside, which frankly is the reason I've never considered reading the series before. However, the first book in the series, Trail of the Spanish Bit, was 180 pages of action and adventure told by a master storyteller. I read the first book in one sitting and dove into the second. And now you have a reason to go on a used bookstore crawl to find the rest of the books in the series. Exactly. If a used bookstore crawl is the same thing as a pub crawl with books instead of beer. (laughs) I guess you could have both books and beer. Now there's a thought. But before we go any further down that rabbit hole, we should let loose the cattle and get on with today's feature, On the Owl Hoot Trail with Billy the Kid. Like Jesse James, Billy the Kid has somehow transitioned from outlaw to folk hero, which continues to baffle me. There are a lot of apologists out there who would have us believe Billy the Kid, who was born Henry McCarty in the Irish slums of New York sometime in late 1859, that he's really just Dennis the Menace with a (laughs) six-gun. I kind of doubt any of the men he killed would look at it that way. Yeah, but both Jesse James and Billy must have used the same spin doctor who would have us believe they never killed a man who didn't need killing. Or at least who they thought needed killing in the furtherance of their outlaw careers. Yeah, there's the key. Raised by a single mother, McCarty moved to Wichita, Kansas as a youngster before trucking west with his mother to New Mexico in the early 1870s. McCarty was nothing if not adaptable, even becoming fluent in Spanish, quickly making himself at home in the rugged territory. However, in 1874, when he was 14, his ailing mother died of tuberculosis, leaving him an orphan. With nobody but an absentee stepfather left to raise him, the future killer was shuttled through a series of foster homes, which placed no restraint on his behavior. Eventually, Sarah Brown, the owner of a boarding house, took pity on him and gave him room and board in exchange for work. Inevitably, however, McCarty fell in with the wrong element, turning to petty crime and thievery in order to survive. His first run-in with the law came in 1875 when he was arrested for stealing food. Ten days later, he helped a local delinquent named George Schaefer, otherwise known as Sombrero Jack, to steal clothing and two pistols from a Chinese laundry. Manipulated into hiding the stolen goods in his boarding house, McCarty was turned into the sheriff by his landlord, Sarah Brown, and arrested. The crime was relatively petty and carried only a minor sentence, but more defiant than smart, the wiry youth acted on impulse and escaped the jailhouse by shimmying up a chimney. The report of the escape in the Silver City Herald became the first published story about the future killer. Hiding from the law, McCarty managed to track down his stepfather, William Atrim, and stayed with him until a dispute between the two ended up with Atrim throwing him out. In retaliation, McCarty stole Atrium's clothing and guns, and it was the last time the two would ever have contact. Fleeing New Mexico territory into neighboring Arizona territory, and becoming a federal fugitive in the process, McCarty took up work as a roving ranch hand and itinerant gambler. During this time, he became acquainted with John R. Mackey, a Scottish-born criminal and former U.S. Cavalry private. Following his discharge, Mackey remained near the U.S. Army post at Camp Grant in Arizona. The two men soon began stealing horses from local soldiers, and McCarty became known as Kid Antrim because of his youth, slight build, clean-shaven appearance, and his personality. Kid Antrim quickly found he had a natural affinity with both the Winchester rifle and the Colt revolver. He was also possessed of an unnaturally fast hair-trigger draw that would have been the envy of any dime-novel gunman. 
when that kind of deadly talent manifests itself in the young, it never stays dormant long. In 1877, McCarty put his skill on display in a saloon when he got into an argument with Francis P. Windy Cahill. A blacksmith by trade, Cahill reportedly had often bullied McCarty. When McCahill referred to him as a pimp, McCarty called Cahill a son of a bitch. Cahill reacted by knocking McCarty to the floor. Both men struggled for control of McCarty's revolver. McCarty eventually drew and shot Cahill, mortally wounding him. Cahill died a day later. Despite eyewitness testimony that McCarty had no choice but to use his equalizer, McCarty was apprehended several days later by Miles Wood, the local justice of the peace. Held in the Camp Grant guardhouse, McCarty again escaped before having to face the consequences of his actions. Stealing a horse and fleeing back into New Mexico territory, McCarty got away from the law only to have Apaches re-steal his purloined horse, leaving him afoot miles from the nearest settlement. Starving and near death, McCarty eventually made it to Fort Stanton in the Pecos Valley. There he went to the home of friend and Seven Rivers Warrior gang member John Jones, whose mother Barbara nursed him back to health. With his vitality restored, McCarty joined a band of rustlers who raided herds in Lincoln County, owned by cattle magnate John Chisholm. After McCarty was spotted in Silver City, his involvement with the gang was mentioned in a local newspaper, which prompted Henry Kid Atrium McCarty to change his name again transforming himself into William H. Bonney, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, or simply The Kid. Which brings us to the beginning of the events that will be disputed over and over again, the Lincoln County War. What led to it, what happened during it, and Billy the Kid's involvement in it all. After returning to New Mexico, McCarty, now known as Billy, found work as a cowboy at the ranch of English businessman John Henry Tunstall in Lincoln County. Tunstall and his business partner Alexander McSween were in conflict with a trio of Irish-American businessmen, Lawrence Murphy, James Dolan, and John Riley. The Irish Alliance had an economic and political stranglehold over Lincoln County, partly because of their beef contract with nearby Fort Stanton, and the ownership of a highly successful dry goods store in the town of Lincoln. In early 1878, McSween was $8,000 in debt to Dolan. A court order was issued leading to a lien on $40,000 worth of property and livestock owned by Tunstall. Trying to salvage something from the situation, Tunstall asked Billy to take nine prime horses to Tunstall's ranch to keep them out of the hands of the court. Meanwhile, Lincoln County Sheriff William J. Brady assembled a large posse of hardened men to seize Tunstall's cattle. Hearing the posse was on his land, Tunstall attempted to intervene, but was shot in the chest by a member of the posse and fell off his horse. Another of Brady's men dismounted, took Tunstall's gun, and finished him off with a shot to the back of his head. And the Lincoln County War was ignited. Murder warrants were issued for Brady and the members of his posse. When an attempt was made to serve those warrants, tables were turned, and Billy, along with two other men, found themselves arrested instead. Deputy U.S. Marshal Robert Widenman, who was a friend of Billy's, entered the fray capturing the Brady's jail guards, putting them behind bars, and releasing Billy and the other two men. Billy took it upon himself to join the Lincoln County Regulators, who owed allegiance to McSween and the dead Tunstall. In the middle of the dangerous back and forth, the Regulators captured Frank Baker and William Morton, who were suspected of being the men who killed Tunstall. Things turned deadly when in the hazy vernacular of law enforcement, Baker and Morton were killed while allegedly trying to escape. So many tales and rumors grew out of the events of the Lincoln County War, 
One claims Billy and the regulators rustled livestock from a local ranch, taking them to the town of Tuscosa to sell. Billy then hung around the town, partying, gambling, drinking, racing horses, and participating in shooting matches, including one supposedly involving Bat Masterson and Temple Houston. However, in his book, Tuscosa, It's Life and Gaudy Times, Fred Nolan states the incident never occurred, but was concocted years later, in 1941, by an Amarillo newspaperman. However, it was an engaging tale and quickly disseminated by the other news outlets, capitaling on its headline potential for driving sales, and to hell with the fact Temple Houston did not set foot in Tascosa until 1882, which would have made it difficult for Billy to participate since he was allegedly killed in 1881. I'm sure nothing like that could happen today. Of course not. And I like your use of the term allegedly killed. Uh, just keeping all my options open? But we'll get to all those intriguing conspiracy theories a little later. Meanwhile, stepping back to April 1st, 1878, when McSween's regulators ambushed Sheriff Brady and his deputies. Billy was wounded in the thigh during that battle, in which Brady and Deputy Sheriff George Heinemann were killed. A few days later, two other members of Brady's posse, Buckshot Roberts and Dick Brewer, were killed during a shootout at Blazer's Mill. Warrants were issued for several participants on both sides, including Billy, who, along with others, was charged with killing Brady, Heinemann, and Roberts. You know, Rich, for me, this is where so much of the confusion inherent in the Lincoln County War comes in. There are local, federal, and judicial representatives on both sides claiming jurisdiction and authority over each other, and each with a very liberal interpretation of justified force. Who was in the wrong, who was in the right has become completely entangled in conflicting accounts of the supposed facts. The one thing that is clear is Billy the Kid was in the thick of it. And the worst of it is yet to come. On the night of Sunday, July 14th, McSween and the Regulators, now a group of 50 or 60 men, barricaded themselves in the town of Lincoln. Billy and a passel of others lied in wait at McSween's residence. Another group took positions on the roof of a saloon, while several more regulators prepared to defend a nearby Doby bunkhouse. On the following Tuesday, newly appointed Sheriff George Pepin sent sharpshooters to kill the McSween defenders at the saloon. When one of Pepin's snipers was killed, the others retreated in quick time. Pepin requested assistance to Colonel Nathan Dudley, commandant of nearby Fort Stanton. At first, Dudley refused to intervene, but later arrived in Lincoln with troops, turning the battle in favor of the Murphy-Dolan faction. On the Friday, a shooting war broke out when McSween's regulators made a last stand inside his house. When the house was set on fire and all but one room was engulfed in flame, Billy and the other men attempted to break out. During the confusion, McSween was shot and killed by Robert W. Beckwith, who was then shot and killed by Billy. Complications ensued. As they always do. At the end of the five-day firefight, the regulators disbanded when the two sides negotiated a flimsy peace agreement. However, having established himself during the war as one of the West's most skilled gunmen, Billy remained wanted for the murder of Sheriff Brady and found himself on the run again. The fallout from the Lincoln County War dogged Billy's trail, finding him accused of more killings on dubious evidence. Billy and three other survivors of the Battle of Lincoln were near the Mescalero Indian Agency when the agency bookkeeper, Morris Bernstein, was murdered on August 5, 1878. Billy and the three others were indicted for the murder. Despite conflicting evidence, Bernstein's killer was Constable Antonacio Martinez. 
All of the indictments except Billy's were eventually repealed. In October of 1878, U.S. Marshal John Sherman informed newly appointed territorial governor and former Union Army General Lew Wallace that he held warrants for several men, including William H. Antrim, alias Kidd, alias Bonnie, but was unable to execute them due to the disturbed condition of affairs in that county, resulting from the acts of a desperate class of men. For his part, Wallace issued an amnesty proclamation in November 1878, which pardoned anyone involved in the Lincoln County War after Tunstall's murder. It specifically excluded persons who had been convicted or indicted of a crime and therefore excluded Billy. In Lincoln, in February 1879, Billy and a friend were supposed innocent bystanders, forced at gunpoint to watch as attorney Houston Chapman was shot and his corpse set on fire. Seeing a chance to clear his record, Billy wrote to Governor Wallace and offered to provide information on the Chapman murder in exchange for amnesty. Governor Wallace agreed, but asked for a secret meeting to discuss the situation. When Billy met with Wallace, it was agreed he would surrender himself for arrest with a promise of protection and clemency if he appeared before a grand jury and testified. Billy allowed himself to be captured by a posse led by Sheriff George Kimball of Lincoln County. As agreed, he provided a statement about Chapman's murder and testified in court. However, afterward, the local district attorney refused to set him free. Several weeks later, Billy began to suspect he'd been the victim of a con job, managing to escape from the Lincoln County Jail on June 17, 1879. The guy was quite the escape artist. Billy stayed out of trouble until February 1880, when he found himself in a fracas at Hargrove Saloon in Fort Sumner. A violent, drunken bully by the name of Joe Grant became embroiled in an argument with a cowhand. Grant commandeered the ivory-handled pistol from the cowhand's holster and slid it into his own. Scared of Grant, the cowhand didn't do anything about the theft. That's when Billy decided to get involved. Approaching Grant, Billy admired the cowhand's pistol. He casually slipped it out of Grant's holster, saying, That's a mighty nice-looking six-shooter you got. Billy spun the cylinder. Apparently, the cowhand had fired three rounds from the pistol, but hadn't reloaded. Billy noticed three used cartridges, so he spun the cylinder, making sure if the trigger was pulled, the hammer would strike an empty cartridge. In his drunken state, Grant had earlier boasted he was going to shoot John Chisholm. Billy called his bluff, telling Grant he didn't know the difference between John Chisholm and Jim Chisholm, his brother. Grant called him a liar. Billy laughed, turned, and walked away. Knowing the type of man Grant was... Billy figured he was a backshooter, and he wasn't wrong. As Billy walked towards the door, Grant pulled his pistol, and when Billy heard the click of a hammer falling on an empty chamber, he spun around and fired three quick shots in a grouping so tight it was said the holes could be covered by a half dollar. Joe, Billy reputedly said to the dead man, I've been there too often to be killed by someone like you. The shooting of Joe Grant was another notch added to Billy's body count. It was cold-blooded murder, but Billy's trick manipulating the empty chambers was overlooked by those who reported Grant drawing first to shoot Billy in the back. The press gave the event little more than a couple of bland sentences, and the law never acted, seeing it as simply another saloon dispute that ended wrong for one of the involved parties. Billy was different to outlaws like Jesse and Frank James, Cole Younger, or Butch Cassidy. He didn't make his living as a bandit. 
The young gunslick stole the occasional horse, but he never once held up a bank, derailed a train, or even shook down a stagecoach. Other than his shooting days with the regulators, his main criminal activity was rustling cattle on the New Mexico plains. However, Billy's inability to leave his gun in his holster was getting to be a problem. Known for his easygoing personality, he wasn't afraid to draw his six-shooter when provoked. In a four-year span between 1877 and 1881, the baby-faced outlaw was involved in the shooting deaths of nine men, at least four of whom he killed single-handedly. Some say he killed many more, some sources even stating he killed 21 men, one for each year of his life. But that statement, while nicely symmetrical, is more myth than truth. In any case, his killings were adding up, and someone was needed to end his killing spree. Patrick Floyd Jarvis Garrett, born June 5, 1850, was a successful man who would go down in history for killing young Henry McCarty, a.k.a. Billy the Kid. Born in Alabama and moving with his family to Louisiana, Garrett and his siblings inherited a Civil War-ravaged plantation upon their father's death. At 18, he left Louisiana for points west and worked as a buffalo hunter and a cowboy in Texas and New Mexico Territory. In the aftermath of the Lincoln County War, Garrett was elected sheriff of Lincoln County, New Mexico, and received a deputy U.S. Marshal Commission, which allowed him to pursue Billy, who was wanted for the murder of Sheriff William Brady, across county lines. In December of 1880, Garrett tracked Billy to a cabin in Stinking Springs, New Mexico, and forced him to surrender. In April of the following year, Billy was sentenced to hang by Judge Warren Bristol for the murder of Sheriff William Brady and confined to the Lincoln Courthouse. Determined to cheat the hangman, as he'd done so many times before, Billy engineered the most daring getaway of his criminal career. During a trip to the outhouse, Billy slipped out of his handcuffs, ambushed a guard, and shot the man to death with his own pistol. He then armed himself with a double-barreled shotgun and gunned down a second guard who was crossing the street. Once in control of the courthouse, Billy collected a small arsenal of weapons, cut his leg shackles with a pickaxe, and fled town on a stolen horse. News of this brazen escape was soon reprinted in newspapers across the country, making Billy the Kid the most wanted man in the West. Garrett continued to dog his quarry that summer of 1881, landing in Fort Sumner, where the Kid was staying with a friend named Pete Maxwell. In the dead of night, Garrett snuck into Maxwell's house where Billy was sleeping. Waking up, Billy stepped out of bed, and Garrett shot him in the chest. The news of Billy's death was a sensation in the age of yellow journalism and dime novels. Billy quickly became a folk hero, and Garrett was vilified for his perceived ambush and execution of the 21-year-old outlaw. In order to set the record straight, as well as turn a fast buck on the public's fascination with Billy, Garrett joined with the Roswell, New Mexico postmaster and journalist Ash Upson to publish The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid in 1882. The book didn't do all that well at first, but by the time its fifth edition was published in 1954, it was seen as the sole true reference for Billy's life. By 1976, the book was on its tenth printing, and though some of it has been found to be heavily embellished, enough factual content remains to make it a worthy launching point in anybody's studies on Garrett and the Kid. Garrett's own death in 1908 was itself something of a sensation when he was purportedly shot and killed by Jesse Wayne Brazel, an old ranch hand who confessed to the killing but was acquitted. The question soon became, did Brazel actually do it, or was it a contract murder initiated by a crime family made up of rustlers, 
Or was it a political hit due to Garrett's long-ago involvement with the deadly Southeastern New Mexico Stock Growers Association and the assassination of former Republican Territorial Legislature Colonel Albert Jennings Fountain, who was bringing hell down on cattle thieves? There were a number of people who had issues with Garrett, and none of them had anything to do with Billy the Kid. Today, in the desert outside Las Cruces, a concrete marker surrounding a stone embellished with a cross commemorates the site of Garrett's murder. In 2020, the city of Las Cruces announced a development plan that would destroy the site, and a group called the Friends of Pat Garrett has formed in order to preserve the site and the marker. And, of course, there are the constant rumors that Pat Garrett either shot the wrong man or helped Billy fake his death. In the late 1940s, an elderly Texas man known as Brushy Bill Roberts even claimed to be Billy the Kid, but his story was largely discredited after family records revealed his birth date to be 1879. Other investigators have since theorized that the kid lived to be an old man under the alias John Miller. Miller's alleged remains were exhumed in 2005, but a plan to compare his DNA to Billy's never came to fruition. Despite the controversy, historical records show Billy's body was positively identified by several different people the day after his shooting, leading most historians to conclude Sheriff Garrett got the right man. Dead or not, Billy still looms large in the psyche of the American West. Proof of this is I read an article in the current issue of True West magazine stating the authenticated pistol Pat Garrett used to kill Billy the Kid sold for over $6 million at auction the highest price ever brought by a similar Wild West artifact. Again, it's amazing how Billy is perceived in some sources as a sympathetic orphan who was constantly being forced into situations beyond his control. Yeah, right up to the point with, how did you put it? He slipped his shackles before ambushing a guard and shooting the man to death with his own pistol? Then arming himself with a double-barreled shotgun, he casually gunned down a second guard who was crossing the street? (laughs) A slight variation of what I said, but definitely on point. In preparation for this episode, I watched possibly the best-known film about the events, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Bless you, my son, for doing it, because I could not have sat through it. The relationship between Billy and Pat Garrett may or may not have been every bit as complicated as the one between Jesse James and his killer Robert Ford, but the two men will be forever connected by history. It's a bond Sam Peckinpah exploited in his 1973 movie, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, starring James Coburn as Garrett and Chris Christopherson as Billy. Peckinpah had wanted to film a Bill Bonney story for years, going back to his original script for One-Eyed Jacks, which had been refused by the studio. Now having completed Ride the High Country in 1962 and The Wild Bunch in 1969, the director saw Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid as his chance to finish the work he'd begun. In the original script, written by Rudy Wurlitzer, Pat and Billy never actually meet on screen until the film's conclusion. Peckinpah changed all that, along with a host of other things, that pissed Wurlitzer off enough to write a future book disparaging Sam and some of his work. The irony is that when the film was released, the studio did the same thing to Peckinpah, engaging in a multitude of cuts and edits that reportedly butchered the director's original vision of the film. The movie finds Pat and Billy, one-time friends, now squared off against each other, Then it meanders around quite a bit in a bleak, sort of nihilistic haze, possibly what Peckinpah himself was going through at the time as he struggled with alcohol, his own manic visions. 
Critics describe a lot of myth and meaning to the movie, going so far as to cast Christofferson's Billy as a messianic Christ-like figure. But the bottom line for me is, it's just not a lot of fun to watch. Don't get me wrong, I can love and appreciate the host of Western character actors cast in the many supporting roles. Slim Pickens, Jack Elam, Jason Robards, and others are all top-notch, and many of them stood behind the director when the studio released the truncated, severely edited version of the work to theaters. There is some great-looking cinematography here and there, and a powerful score by Bob Dylan, who even has a small part in the cast. That said, it's a film solidly in the revisionist camp of that era, and it's not my favorite subgenre of the Western canon. My either. And I did return the favor you did me by watching the film by reading The Kid by Ron Hansen, the author who's most well-known for another dirge of a book, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. The book is chock full of research, interminably regurgitating every gunfight and horse theft Billy was ever involved in or even in the same area as the occurrence. Hansen portrays Billy as that uniquely American anti-hero who so very often rides out of the West, leaving behind a trail of bodies and carnage justified by a bad case of Robin Hood syndrome. I did do some far more rewarding reading about Billy the Kid. During our Jesse James episode, I talked about Bill Markley's book, Billy the Kid and Jesse James, Outlaws of the Legendary West. It's Bill's second book in his Legendary West series from Two Dot, which includes Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson, lawmen of the Legendary West, and Geronimo and Sitting Bull, leaders of the Legendary West. Markley shares the details of Billy's life here, documenting what is known about young Henry McCarty, his brother Joe, mother Catherine, Bill Antrim, and their life in Wichita, Kansas, Santa Fe, New Mexico Territory, and eventually Silver City. While not a lot is known about Henry's transformation into Billy, other than what we've already discussed, There's more than enough here for Markley to weave an enjoyable narrative. With each chapter, Kid Antrim saunters down an ever-darker road, and because of it, adopting the alias of William H. Bonney. Markley does a great job of relating these facts quickly, with plenty of context so you know what's going on, but he doesn't get bogged down. He keeps the narrative moving along. Chapters are punctuated with sidebar asides. There's some really interesting things like Billy the Kid, the photos. Did Jesse James and Billy the Kid meet? And did Billy the Kid live on after Pat Garrett reportedly shot him? Markley takes a look at some of these myths and legends and rumors and kind of dispels some of them, but maybe leaves hope for the conspiracy theorist in all of us who likes to speculate. Markley covers Jesse James and Billy with a unique stylistic flair, alternating chapters between the two men so the reader can easily compare and contrast the careers of both. Neither man comes off especially better than the other. I have to give props to Markley for sharing an honest, unflinching look at these two. To me, Billy's life of crime seems, I don't know, somewhat more happenstance, so the more tragic and less calculated than Jesse's, who seems to have a more overtly planned criminal career. But arguments can be made either way. A book like Bill Markley's does exactly what it should do. It fosters the conversation, doesn't end it. I've also enjoyed a couple of Markley's showdown books, in which he and another author take on both sides of a Wild West legend and shoot it out over the facts. And there's a lot more to come, but there's the clanging of the Chuckwagon Triangle partner telling us to wrap this episode with our shootouts and shoutouts. 
Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being our premier sponsor. Thanks also to our other sponsors, author Chris Entz and the Western Writers of America. Thanks also to Roundup Magazine and Saddlebag Dispatches for their support in promoting our podcast. Next Monday, Paul will be hosting a Six-Gun Justice Speed Listen featuring everything you need to know about actor Ben Johnson, the Cowboy's Cowboy, all in under 15 minutes, give or take. And in two weeks, we will be back with episode 46 of the Six-Gun Justice podcast, Billy the Kid, Part 2, when we'll dig even deeper into the pop culture influences of the dastardly baby-faced killer. And don't forget our Six-Gun Justice conversation segment every Wednesday when either Paul or I get to hang around the Six-Gun Justice Corral talking with writers and friends who love the Western genre as much as we do. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and keep the cactus out of your cornflakes. You are so weird. Adios for now. We're out of here. Let's ride.